0: Vincent LaFerre, that is who we are talking to this time and, you know, someone that I'm assuming this crowd knows all about. He is certainly uh, prolific in the DSLR community um, for good reason. The man started, you know, was helped start the revolution. Uh, if, uh, you know, the engineers at Canon uh, built the bomb, I think that he lit the match and so... We speak with him. He is a Pulitzer Prize-winning still photographer who uh, left a dream job at New York Times to pursue commercial filmmaking to be a director, um, as well as a DP on certain jobs. You know, comparing him to the previous two episodes uh, where we're talking to, you know, guys who are doing great work in their early to mid twenties. You know, Vince has been around he he he's an older guy and and he he has he's had careers he's had careers in in in, in things that he's not even pursuing at this point anymore um, and I think through that comes wisdom and comes perspective and you know it also is a, a view from someone who was here before this new age of gear that is relatively cheap for high quality filmmaking and to watch that revolution happen and to frankly be a major part of that revolution his insight on that is really interesting because I think that we can talk about the new gear and how to utilize it as much as we want, but certain things are um, universal and they don't change. And that's how you deal with decision-making and how you deal with the politics of the world around you and, and, and what you are, how you're viewing yourself within the greater world to keep moving in a direction that makes you happy as a human being. So that stuff to hear it from Vince is great. I think that he, uh, has lived a few lives already and to uh, to hear that to hear that um, those thoughts are, are awesome um, i've known him for a couple of years now uh, my, my good buddy uh, was his i don 't know intern he might hate that word worked for him as assistant let's go with that for a couple of years so um, my relationship with Vince is great. He is—he's—he's he's a brother at some times and a father at other times. It's—it's uh, it, it's, its good to pick his brain and it's good to hear the story. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks for being here.
1: Everyone said, "Don't be a photographer." In nineteen, I was fifteen, so 80, ninety. They're like, "This is an extremely difficult career to be into." You sh- my dad himself said, "You will not be a photographer. You will be a doctor. You'll be a lawyer. You've, you're living the American dream. Um, don't you dare come into this difficult profession. I've worked my ass off to get you out there. Don't go backwards. You know, take the family name and do something better with it." And I didn't. I was so stubborn. I couldn't care less. So I'll know that with my kids. Once my children, I have a daughter and a son, say, "I want to do this." I'm never going to try to convince them otherwise because. Uh, I was uh, unfazed it also helped me become you know more popular at school because now I had a way to relate to other people I would take their pictures I worked for the high school uh, paper and yearbook and that completely started changing who I was as well because prior to that I was extremely quiet because it wasn't my first language I didn't know these people Dalton the kids there tend to start you know in kindergarten go all the way together I was always the outsider And this let me become the ultimate insider. I could get access to anywhere. And it was the best career ever. I loved every single, that's, that's, if you look at my yearbook page, it was just all photography. You know, that rolls of film, cameras, press passes, magazines. That was my dream. It was a singular focus of my life.
0: It's interesting because I feel like a lot of photographers or people that are working in that art would be, if they were talking about why they liked it so much, especially when they first started. I feel like a lot of it would be for the technical reasons or the art, the art behind it. But for you, it, it seems like it was also very much social. That was your ticket into... Connecting like, yeah,
1: with people firsthand and the rest of the world because till then I'd been extremely isolated. And this was the ultimate vehicle because it wasn't that I didn't like people. I just felt very awkward. You know, And I didn't know how to... I wasn't, I wasn't that, that popular guy. You know, at, in school, at all. I was the guy who would hide in the corner, and I wasn't the guy who would really hide in the corner. I just, you know, I was doing my own thing in my own world, and the camera was the ultimate passport. Yeah. You know, so um, from high school, I mean, I, I went pretty hard into it, and and uh, I started working on a portfolio. I went to internships. Uh, it was a very tough struggle, to be honest. Easier than for me than most, because I was ahead of most. But, you know, I did bar mitzvahs, I did weddings, and I went one lens at a time.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, what was that, during that ascendancy towards making it an actual thing that you can support yourself on, what was that like, how did you acclimate to the, to the notion of negotiating and the business aspects? I feel like for me, like when I started doing filmmaking, and it wasn't, even just in school, I remember thinking, I want to do film. And then being in those classes and realizing, oh my God, I need to know so much about computers. And like, I didn't know anything about them. And like, I didn't realize, oh, that meant that I needed to to learn that too. And I didn't want to be a businessman. And now I, and then I realized, oh, I need to like, actually, I hate negotiating. I hate like talking about money. But then I felt like, oh, I actually have to do all those things. What was that process like?
1: So I started in 1990 or so with photography. It was not until 2006 that I became a businessman. Uh, At the early part, I had. was utterly clueless I didn't like money the only thing I really didn't like money is I could buy another lens my I would and one of the best lessons that people don't learn anymore is I only had one lens at a time so I had a 50 for three to four months then I had a 20 for three to four months I had to really decide what the the next lens was a great thing that happened for you but you you? learn how to use that lens inside and out you learn that sweet spot whereas people today get a zoom lens and they don't really Mm -hmm. learn how to lens so anyways uh, I was not a businessman Uh, I was a journalist. I was an idealist. Um, I went to journalism school. I got into NYU film school and into USC film school and into the middle school of journalism in Chicago. And I had a really big choice to make, film or uh, photography. And when I went to USC, I saw fake snow and people um, kind of uh, uh, sledding down in July on fake snow in in front of fraternity. And I was like, I'll never study anything here. Like, I'll just be playing. I went to New York, and it was home, so that wasn't interesting. And I went to Chicago, and it was peaceful on the lake. And that's why I chose journalism. I said, let me do something that's real first. I can always go into the la-la land after. And I don't regret that decision. Um, but then I went through many internships, we can talk about later if you want, in, through college. But it wasn't until after I left the, my staff position at the New York Times, or in the last years of my New York Times, that I learned to start negotiating business and I really learned to start negotiating it after. It's That's one of the hardest and biggest lessons to do to try to balance art and negotiation in a business.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh they're contradictory.
1: It makes you sick to your stomach at times. Whereas now it's I'm completely comfortable with it. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I would get physically sick negotiating certain jobs.
0: Mhm. Yeah.
1: It's an art form. It's it, yes, an absolute it's art, form. An art form, for yeah. sure.
0: Um going back before yeah. we get ahead of The New York Times gig how did it, how, how'd you land the actual gig? First
1: I interned at the LA Times, the Miami Herald. First I got rejected by every single internship and mm-hmm. I applied to the last one as a lark, in a lark. Just kind of stuffed a newspaper in an envelope in out of anger because my placement counselor said try this one more. It's a photo editing mm-hmm. position at Reuters in Washington DC. And I got it. So after 13 rejections in like May, I applied because you just start in September. For Reuters in DC, and I got the job as a desk jockey, you know, editing pictures and they allow I negotiated my way into shooting halftime I've always been good at negotiating stuff like that and I got set on assignments and started my career Then it was the Miami Herald and the LA Times Then I freelanced for about two years as a staff photographer for all sport, which became Getty Images later on and um, I then got mononucleosis because at all sport, I worked about 270 days a year without a day off. Yikes. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And um, then I went, got like mononucleosis. I got a call from the sports photo editor. That's, that's mono, yeah. Mono, yeah. yeah. It was out. And uh, I got a, when I was recovering, I got a call from the editor of New York Times sports section, Steve Giselli, who had met me as a sports photographer. Hey, there's a job opening on the web as a photo editor. Again, it was never a photographer. Would you like it? I can get get it for you and you can work for the it's a f- half time job so if you can work four days for them and three days for me like I hadn't learned anything about that well, killing myself right <laughs> and uh, I got it
0: so how old were you at that point in
1: 1999 so that's when I was 24 right is that right yeah
0: yeah and so you had had a f- three or four years post-college already
1: correct correct and I'd learned from some sort of the very best sports photographer in the business at all sport those were the cream of the crop so it was an amazing education those and were not
0: that, those three or four years. They, that was not freelance. That was being a part of organizations.
1: Initially, freelance for AFP. So I photographed Michael Jordan's last four seasons. I photographed the Bulls, the Bears, the Packers, the NBA Finals. Huge education. I mean, I skipped out on college to basically learn how to do all that stuff to go to the NBA Finals with Michael Jordan. It was pretty cool. Um, and I got kicked out of school because of it because I missed a midterm to go photograph an NBA final. I couldn't care less, but I got back. But um, the New York Times was my first. Then it was all sport on staff for two years. And then mononucleosis. Then the web for six months. And I can tell you, the first hour at the web, I was in a cubicle. I knew I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. I cannot work in a cubicle. Yeah. I cannot do nine to five. Never been able to. I need constant variety or I'm not happy. And I was miserable. Oh, I except the time I was really burnt out. When I left All Sport, you couldn't have paid me to take a picture of a sunset. Like that's how burnt out I was. You know, with mono. I was just fried. So a very important thing for you, I think, or for any creative person to get utterly burnt out with their career at certain points, to be at the You're most saying that's a low. good thing. I think it's an excellent thing. People get very afraid of that and they're like, Oh, it's over, I'm not doing well, I'm doing crap work. You need to go really deep down in some bad areas because then you learn to appreciate what you love about it. And that was the first moment in my career where I was like, that's it, I'm done.
0: And on your way out of that hole, Mm -hmm. what were you figuring out that you loved about it?
1: I didn't. I just, you have to survive. So I took a job as an editor and it was doing other stuff that reminded me of how much I love photography. So being at a desk and editing pictures, I hated that so much because it was mind numbing. Yeah. And I couldn't stand going to lunch with the same people every day across the street. I couldn't. And they were very nice people. No offense to them friends to this day it just wasn't the type of life i wanted yeah yeah and, that makes sense and I, then I feel uh, like,
0: um, it's it's interesting we could be on set for like 12 16 18 hours and yes. like we're good like you could put me in the woods for literally a 20-hour day and i'm good yes but like eight hours in a cubicle and I, Two I'm, hours gonna I'm gonna be gonna yeah, go crazy. i'm gonna be the worst employee i thought ever about had. jumping
1: out the window not yeah. committing suicide but my mind was <laughs> just like that's the window jump just yeah get it over with so um uh six months went by and a staff photographer left the New York Times, which never happens. And ironically, it was Jeffrey Salter, who'd been my mentor back at the Miami Herald when I was an intern. And I got hired as on staff, and that was one of the biggest, momentous things of my career, to get hired as, as a staff photographer at the New York Times at, I think, 99, 25 years old.
0: Yeah. So a combination of, you know, good timing and putting in a lot of the legwork with people there and getting your name known Schmoozing, and having a portfolio at that point work, that's pretty good. Freelancing every
1: weekend or every week for them, getting on the front page, working your ass off. There's yeah. no substitute. But you find, or I find, that in life you don't always choose your path. In that case, Giselle chose my path. He got me in for the back door. Yeah. There's no way. I, I learned when I, l- I left that I was the youngest staff photographer ever hired at the New York Times. They don't tell you that when they hire you. But the point is the odds of me getting hired were extremely slim
0: well yeah when you hear how it all happened it starts to make sense and you right. can also realize how abnormal that is
1: it was absolutely abnormal i completely got in for the back door but had i applied from the outside com- relative to the, all the quality applicants that were I mean, the best photographers in the world were applying to be on staff actually yeah the fact that i got in was exceptional and that's thanks to margaret o'connor and mike smith
0: and when you were there so how how long were you there
1: so, from 99 to 2006, seven.
0: Being within an, an organization like that, how would you describe the creative growth in those years? And was th- being a part of something that had a certain mandate in a certain way, was that a creative compass for you? Or was it something you were kind of brushing up against?
1: I'd say the creative growth was there, but it was extremely what's the word I'm not limited it was constrained as a journalist you can't set up a picture ever you can't tell someone to do something you can't plan anything you have to be reactive it's part of the ethos and part of the ethics and that's extremely limiting for a creative person Uh, you learn to love news you learn to love capturing the moment and the fact that you're documenting history but creatively especially for a paper like the gray lady that was very formulaic you know, I definitely grew tremendously, but in a certain way.
0: What ways were that? I mean, and maybe maybe your growth wasn't all creative. It could have been business. The best thing I as can as well. say
1: is I learned to exploit the, the best type of photography you can get in that paper. Meaning that if you look at Krutzen's work, if you look at, um, you know, Anna or more creative people like, Ch- like Chappelle, Uh, David LaChapelle that are very creative and build worlds and actually or Nadav Kander that uh, Greg Cutler that have or Stephen Wilkes that have their style and their vision and their hand in the work that's creative freedom that's that's being an auteur or an author yeah you're not that as a photojournalist you get close as a you know there's some amazing photojournalists that do get to that level but you're very constrained in how you can work because you can't affect anything. You can't say to someone, the spot of light is on the right of you. Can you move four steps to the right and you'll make an award-winning image? You just have to wait there and pray that they do. How
0: frustrating was that?
1: Uh, it could be extremely frustrating. Um, but it was also part of the challenge and the honor of knowing that I got it in camera and it was real. And that's because Photoshop was starting to come out. And... It was like, well, what's the challenge if you just Photoshop the lightning bolt in there? I want to go to Montana or Arizona, and I want to capture that lightning bolt with the, with the dark clouds. Because when you do, you've captured something extremely beautiful and real. And you learn to love that challenge of capturing reality in a beautiful way. It's a different way of thinking. It's just not the most creative, open way is what I was trying to say.
0: Yeah. Well, it's cr- it's... It's interesting because I feel like it is creative, but the creativity that you're relying on is actually different in terms of it's not maybe necessarily the photographic craft, but it is knowing right place, right time, figuring out what that is based on things that are out of your control and being able to tame that in a way that maybe a commercial photographer is not good at because he's never had to work his chops because he has an assistant who could just move it for him.
1: Exactly. And it's it's a what the best way to describe it is you learn to be creative within a system. So you have constraints of the system, you know what they're going to publish, you know what they like, you know how they run pictures, and you learn to push those limits within the system. Because you know, if you take a picture that is of something that's outlandish or composed in a way, that it's just never going to run. Don't even try. That's not journalism, for example. So you learn. And ethically,
0: you'd be challenged, I'd imagine.
1: There was never a question of actually breaking those. So that's yeah. not even on the table. Right. But there are certain pictures that are never going to run. And you learn how to be creative within the system. In the same way that I think this big part of why I've become a good business person and creative in general is you learn a system and you learn how to break it without breaking it or them knowing you're breaking it. Yeah. So the picture right behind you uh, is a photograph called Me and My Shadow or Me and My Human of ice skaters uh, in Central Park. That ran huge on the front page of the New York Times. At the time, the... Just so ed- that
0: people know, it's, it's a photo taken from what might be a helicopter. It's from a helicopter a, over
1: last year's skating rink in Central Park. With
0: a telezoom,
1: With a 100, 400, 100, uh, 100, 400 zoom lens. Yeah, you know, it's kind of tight. Winter. And it's probably one of my favorite images I ever shot there. What's important to understand is that ran on the front page of the New York Times and the editors told me, we've never run an image like this on the front page of the New York Times ever. This is momentous. This is a work of art that is about the day in New York but this is a huge departure for the New York Times at the time that was only news. Yeah,
0: because when they're saying like this, they mean, because there is nothing not, um, I want to use the word real, there's nothing fabricated with that. No, no one was placed. It's just not news. The
1: New York Times at the time was not a photo paper when I started there. It was, here's a picture of a dead body. and.
0: Did it also it, symbolize maybe the, tr- the transition that news needed to be started to... Um,
1: without them knowing it.
0: Yeah, that they were in competition with. I was just part of that movement. The web coming the up, photographers
1: and that were there were part of that movement. The editors, like Michelle McNally, coming in, were very much part of making the New York Times come, go from being called the Gray Lady and not a good photo paper with some great photographers, though, that had their work squandered and cropped and never run. And then this new series of people came in, photographers and Michelle McNally and editors. And by two thousand by nine eleven we became the probably the single most visual newspaper ever. And it was an amazing transformation.
0: Yeah. And so you get to 2005, 2006, and mm-hmm. what was the impetus for leaving? What was on your mind? It
1: was the creativity. So I knew that the New York Times was called the golden handcuffs or the velvet coffin because no one ever left. You couldn't find a better job. didn't exist. Maybe Time Mag- Magazine. But that was also dwindling back then.
0: Yeah, and in, in this industry, that was the pinnacle.
1: That was it. You knew you don't leave.
0: You'd have to jump ship. The, and, the, the industry yeah. ship.
1: And out. I started to get frustrated because my work wasn't growing. I felt like I had mastered what I could at the time at least. I need to get out of it. If I mm. went back now, I'd be so much of a better photographer at the New York Times. But yeah, I, yeah, I needed point, to it was leave adjated. those constraints of journalism and exercise my creativity. I didn't have any. Uh, I did a lot, but not in the way that I wanted to. And um, the tipping point for me was that Moby's manager, at the time I was a huge fan of Moby,
0: the, um, musician.
1: the musician, asked me to shoot Moby's concert from the air. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding? Yes. And the New York Times said no, because of a potential conflict of interest. You couldn't do any freelance work on anyone that you could potentially ever cover in the future. And given that I did everything at the New York Times from sports to news yeah. to features. And Moby is Moby. Yeah, I couldn't do anything. Happened. And that's, I, to me, I said, I, that's it. I don't want to work at a place where I can't take that opportunity. And f- about for over a year, I negotiated to become the first contract photographer for the New York Times so that I could do stuff on the side and still work for them.
0: The first contract photographer. So, so that whole that whole notion was new to them?
1: They had a few kind of contract photographers overseas, but never in the States. So it wasn't Overseas makes more sense. Yeah, but they never had had a staff photographer go from that to contract. It was a very big deal. But when you asked about business, that was my entry into business and negotiating. That's when it started.
0: And how was that processed? I mean, at that point, did you feel. Comfortable in that negotiation, or yes. was it scary or what?
1: I think that the art to negotiation is finding a mutually beneficial solution where everybody wins. And what I said to them is, guys, I'm proud to be a New York Times photographer. This is an honor for me. Yet I'm constrained creatively. I want to try other things. And as long as I'm a staff photographer here, I won't be able to do that. So I have two choices one is to stay here until I'm 65. And be frustrated, <clears throat> and the other chance is to leave. And neither one of those are attractive to me. Can we discuss a third solution? So in other words, most people are yes or no people, or What was a their B. initial reaction to that? They didn't know what to do. They were kind of shocked. Their initial reaction was to offer me a raise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Throw money at the problem, and they
1: want. They said, "We'll make you a senior staff photographer," which at 2006, so five six. Uh, I can't do math this morning, but 99 seven more years. So I was 32 You wouldn't get staff photographer a senior until usually much later in your career Yeah, it was a very big deal for them to offer me that and it was a very big honor But I said guys, I'm not trying to get more money out of you or status. I want to play. I want to go out and see the world and uh, beyond the New York Times and um, and it took them a year I figured out what I wanted pretty quickly, which was a contract, which means you're freelance, but you have a guaranteed amount of days. You have safety. And it's yeah, a pretty sweet deal. It. it was a great deal, and they talked about it. It took an entire year to go for the union and the executive editor, and here's the key for people listening. I was extremely friendly, not like we go drinking and hang out, but I was respectful and friendly with Arsha Salzberger, the publisher. I was friendly with Bill Keller, the executive editor, and everyone on the high end, because they respected me, my work. I was polite. I knew who they were. I would say hello. We'd sit down once in a while.
0: Yeah, negotiation has a pro- it's all about a negative connotation for no reason.
1: Right. And these were my there weren't my friends, but I admired them, and they had respect for me. Yeah. And they wanted to find a solution because at that point I was making somewhat of a significant impact photographically on the paper. You know, people would say, oh, that's a law for a image, which I never understood how people can identify my style, but cause to me, it's just the way I see. But that's one thing I've heard throughout my career is I don't have to see your byline. I can see your picture all the time. I know it's yours, great. which is interesting. But the point is I had made enough of an impact to get to that point, and they figured out how to do the contract. It took a year. And, and uh, you're still
0: working for that whole year.
1: Uh, yeah. And I couldn't tell a single colleague, which was very difficult because of the union and potential problems. And that was very difficult. Was that a
0: really challenging crossroads type of year for you?
1: Oh, yeah. That was uh, momentous. And then when I finally announced I was going to be a freelancer contractor, the reaction was not good from the other staffers. Really bad. Jealousy? No, maybe. Uh, One of the photographers said I dishonored him in the newspaper because it was the best job in the world and who would ever leave. Mm. Other people told me to my face, you're stupid or you're an idiot. Literally, you're, you're a total idiot. What are you? You're leaving the New York Times on staff to go freelance? Well, but
0: that's also coming from someone who, that is the, they're, they're doing the the absolute work that they want to do at the top place to do it. But yep. you're not doing the absolute work that you want to do. For that but they person, didn't get it might that. be them, silly, like, But for you, it's. But this is the a, best job in the world. You can right. make
1: it whatever you want. What would you leave? To go freelance in this business? Because even back then, it was crazy. The print was starting to, to fall down. But that's part of the reason I left. I wrote an article back then called The Cloud is Falling in 2008, uh, slightly after that, about what eventually has happened to the print industry. I kind of predicted it. Because it was pretty obvious to me that this just couldn't sustain with the web coming out, you know, and Twitter and websites. Like, I kind of saw the writing on the wall.
0: And so now you're, they finally agree to that, and you're out. Yes. And, you know, I know that when you were, You said when you're choosing your colleges, you're like, okay, I could always go back to that movie-making stuff. Yep. Obviously, the reality of that is that you you can, but it's a tall order, and that there's a Mm -hmm. lot to make, a lot of ground to make up. What What were you hoping to go into
1: movies? You mean, or to go back to the the New York Times if it didn't work out?
0: No, no, no. To to go into a more creative field, like how many? I mean, seven or eight. Well, no, because it was seven years there and then another so 10 years, a decade after you finished college, mm-hmm. you're now, okay, I, I, I'm now going to take a step towards the creative stuff that I decided not to do when I chose Chicago. Right. Um, and it was... It was um, what was that plan?
1: I don't know if you call it a plan. I just started <laughs> taking assignments for magazines and started to spread my wing a little bit. And it was still mostly editorial, so it was still the same rules. And it was very hard to break into the other stuff. Um, and I wasn't good at it. I was really good at getting the Super Bowl winning touchdown or the front page photo or the convention opening image. That was what I was really good at. It was very technical, it was very thought-through, the timing was right, the news value was right. I wasn't someone who'd go out and just shoot a bird flying in the sky with a woman in a red dress. It just, I wasn't trained that way and that goes directly back to what my dad did with me with the scissors for the slides is I have two dads. So I had one dad who did that. He made me very technical. And my other dad, uh, my biological dad, I'm not that close to, but we do speak. uh, His name is Jushakian. He did a film called Emmanuel. and He's very out there. And he made this comment to me back then, which stuck with me because it was so dead on that some guy that is my dad, but I speak to once every five years, said, I want to see a bit more craziness in your work. And that was like, poof, you hear that?
0: That like, simple, but obviously complicated.
1: It's that simple, but complicated. And he nailed it. Because I was extremely technical, but I wasn't necessarily... And I was very creative in certain ways. But I didn't know how to let go or let loose. And uh, it frustrated me. You know, I didn't do motion, motion blur. It had to be sharp. And... Um, yeah, there
0: is, there is a level of... Um, kind of, uh, ta- you know, getting a grip on... on abstraction
1: oh yeah it wasn't my wheelhouse I'd make fun of artsy for artsy photographers I'm like you know even though you just crap.
0: left the times to become one
1: well I wasn't trying to become an artsy for artsy photographer or whatever that was I was just trying to try new things okay and uh, I started working for all the big magazines uh, Vanity Fair uh, Sports Illustrated eventually uh, New York magazine etc cetera, etc cetera. then my career grew and it became more of a commercial enterprise. I, I joined an agency called Stockland Martell, Bill Stockland, and Maureen Martell, who I'm still friends with today. I still work with them today. And they helped me start to get commercial work, which is initially very tough because I had no commercial portfolio whatsoever. So, so
0: you had, in terms of like the business side of this stuff, because yeah. now you jump out of this yes. big cog that, that is helping get yes. all your, it's doing all the logistics company for you.
1: Company car, company gear. Right. You call every morning and they tell you where you're what going.
0: What was the learning curve on just, you are now... Essentially, Vincent Laferay, LLC. Like, how does that...
1: Yeah, I was an S-Corp. and how hard was um, that?
0: Learning it. I
1: don't know if the hard is the right word, but it was a tremendous amount to learn. And it took me five to ten years to learn. Like, what I know today, I feel like a specialist. Whereas, back then, I knew nothing.
0: What were the... Are there some key points in terms of, like, what you feel...
1: The most basic one is cost of doing business you add up every one of your expenses, your cameras, your maintenance, your rent, your cell phone, your computer, your software, your insurance, and you divide it by the total number of days that you plan on working that year. And if you're not making that much money on every assignment, you're losing money and going bankrupt. Very basic thing to learn. And that's how you negotiate with clients. They say I can only pay you this much and you say it cost me $400 at the time or $700 a day just to stay solvent. And if you're paying me 500, I'm losing. And that's pre-tax money, by the way. So that's how you learn to negotiate. It wasn't, I need the money. It was, I can't stay in business for that rate, I need this money. And
0: it becomes more of a dance when it's like, well, it is true that if I do this job, it might lead to other jobs that will give me the the actual money that I need, and being able to pick and choose those correctly, because obviously everyone's gonna tell you you it's great exposure, but sometimes it is great exposure.
1: You gotta look at those as silver bullets. You know, the syllable, it's being you only have five or six, you know, and you only have one or two or three a year that you can do mm-hmm. where you just do it for the love and for the profile. So if, you know, Beyonce calls you to take a portrait and there's no money, you go do that because you're going to get a tremendous amount of
0: PR. You take Beyonce's portrait.
1: Right. But other stuff, you're like, I can't. No, sorry. I know it's uh, Snoop Dogg or something. I still do Snoop Dogg, but let's say they know... Uh, no, I know. An older I, 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 artist yeah. who you're just like it just doesn't have that cachet, and I'm sorry, I got this is my day rate, right? and so this is dance. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so you're doing, so you get this you know, a part of, would you call them a rep, or how would you describe yeah. that relationship?
1: Yeah, Stockton Martell's a rep, and there no one wants to hire me because I don't have any commercial work. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the classic Catch-22.
0: How'd you deal with that Catch-22? Because I feel like a lot of us are up against that Catch-22. You
1: just grind away, and you pray, and you apply for a lot of jobs and get rejected. You do a lot of personal work right? that looks commercial, and uh, you find one or two agencies a year that give you a break. The problem for me is the timing, um, because the economy started crashing right around there, the internet bubble. Um, I would have been a perfect candidate to do corporate, you know, photography it was right down my wheelhouse. Right. But because but the economy the crashed, they didn't want to have do do any more of that, and also they stopped publishing uh, physical annual reports and did PDFs. So all the timing was bad. It was a very hard several years, a lot of soul searching. I thought I was failing. As a commercial photographer. Editorially, doing fine.
0: Were you failing?
1: As a commercial photographer, I did fail. It's not that I... I, Overall, um, through those years, I never really went anywhere. I did some good stuff. had some great ads, but I was not a success. And I didn't like it. It bored me.
0: The commercial? Yeah,
1: because... That must
0: have been gutting, because, I mean, you left something because it was boring you to do something that you thought wouldn't, and then you realized that that's boring. No,
1: I just... At the time, because the economy was so bad, agencies weren't taking risks. And they would hire you and give you a brief and say, execute. And I said, but I want to have a discussion. I'm an intellectual. I like to have ideas. And like, we don't want to hear your ideas. We want you to execute that like this other photograph you did. And more than anything, at the time, retouchers were becoming as important, if not more, than the photographer. And I was coming from a background where I would line up a shot in, in camera and wait for the moment. And that was part of the challenge. And I was antiquated. I was like, well, why would you do that? Just Photoshop those four pieces together. Let the retoucher do it. And my reaction was, then what am I doing? A monkey could do this. That's how I felt. So I lost interest. Never really did it. And the irony is like 10 years later now, I do extremely well in commercial photography because I've learned different things. But at the time, I just hated it. Was uninterested. Did a lot of editorial. Got some commercial work. uh, But there was a mental block there.
0: And where, at what point, are we starting to make the move towards... Well, I guess... Wh- they, wh- the you the get film. broken. Where's the film stuff coming from? Oh, that's from? not
1: even on the radar yet. Uh, but back then, I wasn't doing well commercially. I realized... I, all You also get logged at the New York Times or as a press photographer is when something happens, you go cover it. When uh, you get a call every morning from the photo desk to go shoot something. But to be a self-starter is a whole different thing, especially creatively, to come up with your own idea, your own ethos, your own visual, your style. Back to your original conversation, I didn't have that. My style was just the way I shot. It wasn't me waking up in the morning and saying, I want to do it like this. It was more based on a refusal. To my, my basic description of my pho- photography career was, I refuse to see an image that I've taken before or seen before. So every day I went out there trying to find an image. You were
0: finding your style. You weren't creating it.
1: I, wasn't even, I wouldn't even call it a style. It was a method. Sure. My method that's was to never shoot a photograph I'd either seen or shot before. That was the goal. And that's why I got a reputation to come up with really original images. It wasn't because I was original. Maybe it is. It was my refusal to do the expected. Right, right, right. Stubbornness.
0: So then let's get to this film stuff because then yeah. you start and like how does... I mean, I think from the outside we would say that the, the 5D video was the launching point for videos. No and question. You, so you agree Oh, absolutely. from the inside? I don't know if you felt different. I had
1: never shot a piece of motion picture film or video. I rent, I bought a X100 Panasonic, the first 24P camera, used it for a week, hated it, returned it. That was my entire exposure to film. And then in 2008... I was supposed to have lunch with someone, got blown off, completely, rudely blown off. Ah, I'm not too busy to see you. Come back next week. Thursday or Friday, you pick. And I picked Friday, and literally, serendipity, as I walked into the office, these two white boxes with two two 5D Mark II prototypes came by, and I was smart enough to follow the guy who was highly irritated because he had just been busted. And I'm like, what are those? He's like, Vincent, come on. And I'm like, I know there's some good stuff in there. And he's like, ah. All right, sign this NDA. You show me the 5D Mark 2 and he said it's twenty, eighteen megapixel, twenty one. I forget what it was. Shoots X amount of frames a second. Yada yada yada. Oh, and hey, it shoots video. I'm like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, they put the video function in there, kind of like the, the digital L's, the point and shoot. I said, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Let me see what that looks like. And I walked around. I still, you can see, I'm still getting goosebumps to this day. And it's like, almost ten years later, uh, I walked around the office, twenty four seventy two eight, looking at the rear LCD. And I knew it. I'm like, this will change everything. And it's not like the bulb went on. It blew up. And I was like, this is it. And I'm like, I have to have this. Let me shoot something for you. This is this is going to change everything. And their answer was a flat out no. <laughs> uh, it's going to three other photographers. Go away. You just shot a brochure for us six months ago. We've got 40 or 50 explorers of light. I was one of the Canon photographers. You can't do everything, Vince, your little shit. Go away and I was unrelenting cuz no to me is not no no is the start of a conversation when you get no response that's a problem when someone actually takes the time to say no that's a yes to a conversation and I was unrelenting for 4 hours and I finally got it and they let me borrow it over the weekend
0: and um what was your plan
1: didn't have one i yeah yeah literally you wanted to
0: do something with it
1: i hired a model a male model and my entire plan was one of the images in Reverie had the silver glasses with the Empire State Building reflected in it. That was the ethos or the genesis for Reverie. And my wife had then said, Well, what about a woman, too? I'm like, I can't afford two models. So they didn't give me any money or budget. They just lent me the camera. And I said, Here, take the camera, write us an email on Monday. So I'm like, Okay, a man and a woman. All right, I guess they're going on a date. And maybe it's a dream it's the biggest out as a filmmaker is to make everything a dream. It solves all the problems.
0: And it gives you music video rules. Yeah, exactly. And Anything
1: my, goes. Anything goes. And then my my wife went out to go get a red dress, the, that famous red dress on the girl. And the guy rented a tuxedo. We got two models. And uh, Mike Eisler, who still works with me today on air, um, had the, they gave us one camera, one battery, no manual. We had no idea how this thing worked. And I had to do a public speak speech for Canon that day, that night. He was in the car trying to figure out the camera. Mike. Mike Eisler, And uh, then we went to shoot Saturday night, from Saturday from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. and Sunday from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m., same thing. Uh, and uh, I had an intern back then named Yoni Brook when I was on the staff at the New York Times who is now a very successful documentary filmmaker. And I invited him. I said, I need your help. And he turned me down like four times. Yoni, trust me, you gotta come. And his role was basically to make sure I didn't mess up screen direction because, having grown up on film sets, I knew just enough to be dangerous. I knew about screen direction, I knew about cutting, but I didn't really know it. I mean, I'd literally never shot a video.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say.
1: It was this was my very you first. Never attempt. edited anything. Oh, I didn't have a clue on what a hard cut was, or you know, on uh, any of this stuff. What coverage was?
0: And so you made this for Myself. your meeting on Monday.
1: It's for me. No, I know, but you, yeah. you
0: had it done by the meeting on Monday.
1: Yes, and we shot it o- over two nights. Which must have blown nights. them away. Well, not initially because I sent them the email. No one looked at it for three days. <laughs> okay. So I figured it sucked. But there's a very important person in here though. Is uh, Andrea Costantini also? So we did the edit, and of how I would storyboarded it, and I watched it once, and I said this sucks. And you know, as a filmmaker or photographer, if you watch your own film once or twice, you don't want to see it a third time, you're in trouble. And I'm like, this is lame. It was edited, edited in a linear way from start to finish. And I saw that Andre in the bottom of the Final Cut Pro timeline had a little bit of a nonlinear uh, sequence. I didn't even know what a sequence was back then. I said, what's that? He's like, ah, oh, it's like, you know, a nonlinear sequence, just kind of just having fun with it. I'm like... Can you edit the whole thing like that? Was really what I said. I was like, I sounded like one of those terrible directors, does not know what he's doing. <laughs> Just what I at was at the time. That's what. That's you what were. I was. Yeah. I was Like, can you make it look like that? And he's like, Yeah. I said, Can you do it in the next nine hours? And he's like, Of course. And Andre is responsible for taking what was the most horrible linear edit. If you watch back on Reverie, it skips over all back and forth. Yeah. And um. You further, know,
0: further, putting it in the music video world, and yeah, it was a terrible you know, bad cologne commercial. commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah it
1: yeah. was a terrible bad cologne commercial, but, but um, it was shot on a. It was on a shot DSLR. on the first DSLR with lots of cool lenses, with someone who knew how to compose at least, you know, from a photography background. And we got Moby's music. We got his permission, which was awesome. And we sent the Canon for three days. They didn't say anything, and I was like, "It sucks. They don't like it." And that was it. And then the third day, I, I got a call. I was like, Vincent. What the F did you just do? And it was it sounded angry. And I was afraid. I was like, oh, what did I do? I don't know. And he's like, this is amazing. We're all watching. Because they were at their big um, annual They are just losing conference, over it. And everybody went nuts there. Like, that's all they were watching. And they're like,
0: this is going to change everything, yada, yada. And I'm like, okay. Isn't it hysterical that they didn't know? How do they not know?
1: I don't know. All I know is that initially, Canon Inc., in Japan, said we'll never publish this video,
0: they what? were gonna kill it. It's a prototype. What was the reasoning?
1: They had never released prototype footage ever, it was not an p- approved camera. And Japan said, Nope, mm. we're gonna kill this. You cannot ever see the light of day. And it took one week of very careful negotiations to release it, and then the rest is history. Because when that thing went online, when that thing went online. Um, this was before YouTube and this was before Twitter. Yeah. It was the start of a
0: a few revolutions. Yeah.
1: And it just took off. It's a confluence
0: of a bunch of things.
1: Unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It was, I'll never forget refreshing the blog and going from five views and 30 seconds, 50 views, then 750, then 1500, then 2500, then 25,000. It was, it got 2 million views in the first few days and 10 million views, you know, in that few month period they had more traffic on the canon website uh in that one week than they had the entire year combined for all of canon usa it was insane and
0: from that moment you're like "Well, i might be uh, starting a filmmaking career like what 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 was the what shift into that
1: it was very difficult because i was entirely aware of how clueless i was as a filmmaker yet i had to play the game so i knew where i was as a photographer at that point so 2008, uh, 13 years as a photographer, I knew everybody in the business. And here I was with 48 hours, or 24 hours of experience as a filmmaker. And I had become a household name within the video world. Like everyone from talking to people, like you, you people know your name now. People at Disney, people at Paramount, people everywhere. Like Vincent Lafray is now a known brand. And yet they don't even know that you want a Pulitzer or work for the New York Times. It's very weird that something can completely change your how you're perceived by others and who you are versus the reality of who you
0: are, let alone your body of
1: work. So
0: is this, a, is this an exciting time, a scary time? Both?
1: Both the most exciting and the single most terrifying time of my life. Because I decided to go for it. So I got invited to the Oscars, Ampus people, American Picture, American Motion Picture Association, Academy of Sciences to screen it. I got invited to Disney to show it to Orin Aviv, who's the guy who green lights every project back then. Uh, I got invited to Industrial Light and Magic to speak to three or 400 animators uh, and Lucas and all that stuff. So, Talk about an honor, right? You know, and I was relatively well-known as a photographer, so I wasn't a total newbie, but as a filmmaker, I was nothing. Yeah, no, this wasn't the world, So it was though. scary at the same time no one cared. They were like, we want you to shoot this, this, and that. And uh, this is definitely make uh, fake it till you make it territory. Mm-hmm. It's just not my style. I don't like to fake it till I make it. I like to actually know what I'm doing. So I had to have the discipline to slow down and kind of let that die down a little bit and learn the craft. You know, and start learning the craft. And that was very difficult. Also, I, after a, almost a year, with a new child, Noah, picked up and moved to California with and leaving every every contact I had in New York. It was the gutsiest and stupidest thing i ever done, but it worked out. But man, that was terrifying. I didn't know anybody in, in the movie world, didn't have any commercials on my reels, other than Reverie and this little thing called the surfing thing, I had nothing. So
0: that's a real crossroads.
1: Yeah, it was a huge crossroads. That was, that was the biggest play of the dice I ever did.
0: And you get to LA and, you Cr- know. And crickets.
1: <laughs> I'm getting invited everywhere to talk about the camera, the technology. But not so hired. I understood it. Uh, no, because I didn't have any experience. They know what I was doing. They knew I didn't know what I was doing. But I knew, uh, you know Hollywood, I knew more than a lot of people. Right. And uh, I definitely knew the technical stuff really well and I had an eye so I started getting hired as DP and that's to what started helping me slowly get in the problem or the gift was that I worked for a lot of really bad directors and I was like and who would ask me to make some key decisions and I was like well if you're asking me to direct there's a great story where I did a, a PlayStation commercial and there was another young director who was a VFX guy and the first ADs and the art directors and everyone kept coming to me. I was a DP saying, where should should this go? Where should that go? And I knew enough at that point. I learned more in the, in the first six months, you know, than most people learn in six years because I was a crash course. I was very adamant about learning about all the protocols, the union protocols, all that stuff. And you
0: were also being thrown into the deep end of the pool just because they thought you had exactly. been there before even though you yeah. hadn't. Been.
1: And they're like, you know, where should we put the actors? I'm like, well, that's a director's question. You know, go ask the director and five minutes later they come back and say, The directors had to ask you. I'm like, okay, I'm like where should, what should the actors do? I'm like, Okay, so basically the guy wants me to direct. And I had a few of those experiences and I said, You know what? Yeah, you know my background, I love music. I love art. Uh, I love people. I love actors. I love storytelling, and I felt that being just "quote unquote" a DP, which is focusing only on the visual and lighting and the camera movement, was not satisfying. It's was not much, enough. It was not enough. I was very felt very limited, and I said, "Well, go full Monty. Go for it." It was terrifying. Took a long time um didn't know what i was doing for the first few times had a, some great mentors some great cam operators like charles papert who's who learned under garrett brown basically handhold teach me even though i was his quote unquote superior as a dp and he was a cam op you know he taught me yeah. uh and there were other people in the business who kind of did the same because they knew i had some talent they just knew i had no tr- classical training and then i really studied and I studied films i worked with other directors i shadowed directors and of course, with each job, I learned a lot, and it takes a while. And I think that's the truth is that's going to happen to anyone going into filmmaking because even people go to film school. Um, I have worked with USC and NYU film grads, and there I've worked with some of those people that are utterly incompetent. They don't know what a one or a two is. They don't know how to, you know, do how to block out a scene. They don't know coverage principles. Some of them are excellent, but some of them are clueless. You're like, you went to film school, and the reality is. This is not something. You, you, this is a job you learn on the job, and you have to at least hopefully, you know, watch a hundred or two hundred films, analyze them, read about film history, uh, learn a lot from editors about, you know, pacing, coverage, how to cover a scene, how to give them the pieces they need, different types of cuts, different types of moves. It's a, tr- a tremendous amount of learn.
0: Yeah, I mean, you essentially hit the ground running on a second career. Because I mean, yeah. while they both use a camera, they yeah. could—they're so there's different. N- there's there's no, nothing there's the same. the
1: only parallel between photography and film is framing and lighting.
0: And especially from a photojournalistic standpoint, where yeah. you're not doing the creative changes in frame because it's ethically not allowed. Right. You know, you couldn't. Luckily, f- so, I'd done the so commercial
1: different. stuff in between. Had I not had my it's own nice commercial buffer. photography business. Where I learned to work with crews of three and four assistants, and maybe a motorhome. When I got into bigger jobs with twenty or thirty people, I don't think there's any way I would have made the jump. So luckily, I had yeah. that interim. Otherwise, I'd have been I would have fallen so flat on my face.
0: And so now, with these projects being bigger um, and kind of you know a film set that you're well, on. Well, nine, now, nine months like later, 20. after
1: Reverie, I found myself on a six hundred thousand dollar job as a DP, shooting with a Phantom and motion control rigs. Uh it's a commercial called Famous Footwear. And boy, wow was I scared because that was serious. That was a real deal. You know, it was almost maybe a million. I don't know what it cost, but it was a tremendous amount of Did that budget
0: give you give I mean, I, I guess there's obviously there's added pressure, but like was it very present in your mind? Like that was it looming or no, it was with opportunity. I loved yeah.
1: it. And I worked with a fantastic director named Lonnie Perister who I still talk to and work with. I've done a few commercials with him. And I worked with an amazing gaffer who's now a DP named Mark Lindsay. He's a close friend as well. And he, I was always upfront with people. I said, guys, I have no idea how many watts of power we need. I have no idea how many 4K or 18Ks. I don't know the difference between an 8, uh, a 1K tungsten versus a 1K HMI. But I did. But the point is, this is not my world. I know how to frame. I know how, what kind of light I want, and I can describe it to you. So as long as you have a vision as a director or a DP, no one's gonna ever well, hold yeah, that against you. the conversation
0: you have with your gaffer, yeah. and depending on what light, like yeah. how much they're carrying, yeah, he the loved my work side, as a photographer.
1: He was happy you can to help have me.
0: Just a purely conceptual yeah. discussion. And, and the same as a it.
1: director, as long as you know what you want, the entire team is there to help you get it. However, if you show up unprepared, you're dead. They'll kill you.
0: Right, you were prepared, but you were prepared in a way that you were able to be prepared. You couldn't come in knowing all of that extra technical stuff. Correct. But you, by being upfront It was very awkward for me
1: being a very technical guy, having to rely on someone else. Humbling. And that was super humbling. But that's also the gift, is it allowed me to realize, whoa, I don't have to be the technical guy anymore. i actually be creative now. Mm. And that was a major shift in my career.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that would be. And so... Now you're at a place where you review scripts and mm-hmm. you're trying to get those to yep. off the ground and things of that nature. like what are you I've what are probably you hoping for here? I have
1: read three or four hundred scripts by now and 95 percent were awful and it's extru- I think the single most valuable thing in Hollywood other than a good other than a good um, uh, actor is by far the single biggest jewel is the great script. And I found one and my goal was to do that ne- early next year. And then this whole Air project came out of nowhere uh, that I'm doing, bringing now. you back to
0: photography. Which does is does it bother irony. you or no? no I mean, it's obviously it's it's a lot. Of, Air is being very successful, so yes. I, I wouldn't bother you. But is there no? You, if you have this big script thing, are you kind of annoyed or frustrated that you can't get to it, or how does I'm that still do working on
1: it? Um, I'm not annoyed. I hope I don't lose the script, you right. know. Um, and but other than that, l- like I say, you know, other than chasing down the 5d mark ii working my ass off every day and having a very big discipline and all that most of the big moments in my life have kind of just happened life has a way of showing you what you're going to do and that's what air is air was just one other editorial assignment like hundreds i'd done before and i published it on a platform called storehouse just again social media and it just exploded
0: yeah for those who don't air is just uh, photos of different cities that it's just taking at, at, at high night. altitude yep. on a helicopter, 7,000, 8,000 feet up. Yep. And so the perspective is quite different. And frankly, nothing... It's only been possible now with high ISO cameras, yep. so it hasn't been able to happen until there's, there's now. There's no basically. record of
1: anyone ever having done this before, which is odd in 2015. But it makes sense in that the technology wasn't there. It was just too dark. And now with these cameras that shoot at 32, 6400 ISO and up, and produce really clean images... Uh, it's been a pretty spe- spectacular ride.
0: Yeah, I mean it's uh, <clears throat> it's poetically full circle. Yeah, shots coming from a helicopter have yeah. been your thing, and yep, yeah. now you're doing it in a way that's much more creative than um, yeah. what you're doing at uh, yeah. New York Times.
1: Yeah, and you know I th- I'll tell you one thing that we didn't discuss, which is probably the single biggest lesson and change. In oh, my well career. then let's
0: discuss it. Sorry about these. Springs. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the spring noise.
1: But um, towards the end of my photography career. Quote unquote, meaning before the transition into quote unquote filmmaking or commercial directing, whatever you want to call it, I had a National Geographic assignment where they gave me a tremendous amount of money to go fly around the country and shoot this story called The Drying of the West. We had a $120,000 budget. Drawing? Drying. The Drying. Yeah. $120,000 budget to spend just on helicopter time. That's unheard of. That's like striking the lottery. It was a gift. And a few days into it, I was so stressed out. This was, a resp- this was geographic. This was the pinnacle. There's nothing better. Yeah, Who doesn't want to be a geographic? I mean, the I'm, I can, grill, yeah. I can actually contractually call myself a National Geographic photographer because I've been on assignment for them. Cool. Uh, i never done it, but whatever. Um, the point is, that was the Mecca. Just because you got an assignment doesn't mean you never made the magazine. Some people, Some stories held for three years. And here I was. This was the big deal. And I wasn't happy because the stress was killing me. And the stress
0: was coming from where? Internal. No, I know, but what was causing it?
1: The bar was so high. I had to do the best work of my life. And three or four days into it, I said, Vincent, what the hell are you doing? This is the best assignment of your life. It's probably your last one like this, given what's going on in the industry. Freaking slow down and enjoy it. And I did. And that was a major shift in my life. So I can tell you that prior to that moment, I spent the majority of my career as a photographer not enjoying it. I did not enjoy the process. I enjoyed the chase of the image. It was all about getting the image. It was about making the deadline, getting the best image possible. It was competitive. It was deadline-driven and somewhat ego-driven of getting the best image of all the photographers around you, and you make, you make the paper over all the other wire photographers and your colleagues. And I can tell you that that was at the sacrifice of actually enjoying what I was doing. It was a, not a job, but it kind of was. It was a pressure and anxiety. And then from that geographic assignment on, I now enjoy the process even more than I enjoy the still image. I enjoy both. And that took me and you not, know, times in my 30s. That's a very big yeah, lesson for and people. And that
0: much translate to the final product, too.
1: It, you can see it night yeah. and day. And now it's probably the big block is when you have your eyes so focused on the final prize, you forget to enjoy the journey. And uh, I teach a lot now still. I see people who are stressed out taking pictures. And I go to them, I say, hey, Jared, if you don't get that image, what happens? And they look at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, do you miss your payment on your mortgage? Do your kids get kicked out of school? Do you never get hired by that magazine again? They're like, No, I'm like, so who cares? Enjoy, have fun. It's supposed to be fun. When I did it, those were all realistic possibilities that I would never get hired again, or I would disappoint the editor, or I couldn't pay my mortgage. You get the idea. But photography is a a fantastic thing. And we all have, no matter what we do, this, especially some of us, at least, this propensity to take a great hobby or joy and get obsessive about it and becomes no fun. You see yeah. that all the time with parents and their kids in sports, musicians, all that. And the key is to find a way, I think the best musicians that are out there, to just love what you're doing in the process. Keeping it fun is so much so important.
0: And it's so hard. It's, it's ca- so it's hard how when how hard you hard
1: add the business aspect of it. Yeah. It kills it. The moment someone pays you to do something, It's usually because on a basic level, I joke, there's a reason they're paying you to do it because they don't want to do it themselves. But, you know, generally speaking, on lower end jobs, or they can't. But with that comes pressure and demands from the clients. And the best photographers just do their own work. They listen to their clients. They're not deaf. But they say, "Mm, no, I'm doing this. Or I can make this better for you. And the irony is I've come full circle now. From when I started as a commercial photographer, they would hand me... Execute this a blueprint, whereas now clients are coming to me saying, "We have this concept or this product. We don't know what to do with it. Can you help us design the campaign?" And that I finally reached that full circle I was imagining it could be. It took me twenty-five years, but now it's actually happening. So I just tell people, "Be patient. It might actually happen."
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's the um, the long game goal. The long game is, is to the be big deal. is to be somewhere where You're hired to be a part of the concept making instead of just being a kind of a a technical puppet. I just
1: got hired by a client who said, we want you to go to spot A and B. And I said, well, I don't really want to go to spot A and B because the photographs are going to be really hard to get there and you're not going to get stuff that's that original. I want to go to spot C and D. And they're like, no, we want A and B. And I said, okay, that's all right. I'm not interested. And it wasn't personal. It wasn't mean. And, you know, I, I didn't even say I wasn't interested. I just warned them about all the perilous problems about A and B with rights issues, with permits, with costs, with the type of people there and the kind of images they would get. And, you know, it's always about not being confrontational. And I was like, this interests me if we go to spot C and D because you're going to get so much better stuff and it's going to be more enjoyable for me. And you're going to see it in the images. And they acquiesced. And they will I think they'll benefit from it because I'm going to go that. there.
0: Negotiation where um, you're making them, you're convincing them that they're gonna that they're winning in at the same time.
1: They have to be. And that's the key. If you're convincing someone that they're gonna win and you don't believe it yourself, you're dead. Especially if you don't produce. But if you know they're gonna get better images and you convince them again, it goes back to that initial conversation of being mutually beneficial. Yeah. They will benefit from me going to C and D. Had I gone to A and B. They might have gotten amazing images, but I'd have to work at it a lot more, and I can't guarantee it, given the nature of those places. C&D, they're going to get good stuff. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's beautiful places, great people.
0: Yeah. So. Well, thanks so much for the conversation, man. My pleasure. It's great to learn more about you. Thanks, Jerry.